Peace be to you. Henry the Cardinal of Evil. Let us begin with a question. Welcome to Curiously Catholic, an Evangelion production. In this podcast, we're going to be picking the brains of Catholic enthusiasts to try and get to the bottom of how to live truly as a Catholic in contemporary times. My name is Dominic Malgeri, and in this episode, we have Peter Holmes all the way from Sydney, Australia. Welcome, Peter. How's it going? Doing reasonably well, as well as can be expected in this crazy time. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, What's it like over there at the moment? I'm pretty crazy, although New South Wales isn't as shut down as New Zealand, I'm pretty sure, although Victoria is getting quite close. But New South Wales, mostly they um, just tell us uh, that we should wear a mask and nobody does. So mm. that's oh, the right. way yeah, it is yeah. right now. Yeah, I think it's pretty similar in New Zealand. Um, yeah, we've just come out of uh, level three. And I don't know what level run someone's like 2.5. I'm like, it seems like they're just being a bit pedantic now. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I've had, I had my first uh, day on hospital placement today. So there's lots of uh, hand hygiene everywhere and face masks and stuff. So it was a lot more relaxed than I thought it was going to be, but it was uh, still, mm. we, had to, we had to walk around with face masks on, which was, uh, it wasn't actually as bad as people make it out to be, I thought, but um, right. I just find it all a bit hilarious because in our first year, we literally had lecturers saying, I don't know why people wear face masks out on the street because they're not that effective. Uh, <laughs> and now, now it seems like they're eating their words, but I don't know. Um, so yes, on this podcast, we pick the brains of Catholics, Catholic enthusiasts. So uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, you're a, what I would call a Catholic enthusiast. What kind of Catholic stuff do you do? Uh, well, um, at the moment, I'm lecturing in theology at the University of Notre Dame. So that's pretty much the official um, stuff that I do, as in that's what I do for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach scripture mostly. I teach marriage and sexuality as well. Um, that's my research area, in particular masculinity, the Catholic theology of masculinity. But um, I have my own podcast, or rather it's a podcast for the Sydney Archdiocese, which I happen to be the host of, um, mm-hmm. called This Catholic Life. And so we, we explore life, the world, the universe and everything in from a Catholic perspective. Um, we have all sorts of topics on that. And um, I try to get around and, and um, do what people ask me to do, if they do. I've been at Hearts of Flame there in New Zealand uh, the last three years. And that's been fantastic. Oh. Yeah, that, that's how I heard of you. Yeah, yeah. And the last, um, the last time I was there, I actually took a little extra time and took a, a swing around the um, South Island. And now I'm enchanted, and I want to come back and have a good look around. So that's the uh, that's the draw card of New Zealand, the South Island, eh? Yeah. So I, I do talks around the place, but um, none of that's for a living, and I don't I don't charge or anything for that. So that's mostly hobby stuff. Mm. And I when I'm uh, have some spare time. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to play computer games and right. kick, kick an Aussie rules football around and um, spend as much time as possible with my lovely wife and my eight children. Eight children. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's fantastic. Absolute goals right there. I, uh, I've got one and one on the way. So uh, that's quite exciting. It I'm is, not sure. It is. I'm not sure we'll quite get to eight, but um, we'll see. It's not a race. It's not a race, and it's not yeah. a competition. It, God has. I mean, we never set out to have eight. We just God has blessed us with uh, the ones right. we have, um, and each each one of them is an individual challenge and a and a joy. So, what's the youngest and what's the oldest? The oldest is 22, right. and he's currently dating a New Zealander, actually, um, and the youngest is six and a half. And he's um, what? What's this? This year one in school, so. right? Yeah. Mm. Eight now. Well, right. Very good. Very good. Um, so you've had. Um, I start off every episode by talking, asking the uh, person I'm interviewing about their their faith journey, because um, you know I think it's always really a great way to like get to know someone a bit more, and it's always really interesting to hear the different ways that everyone finds it. Their, their place uh, with God. 
So uh, I understand you've had quite a long journey. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm approaching the end of my fifth decade, so it's it's going to be a little bit of a story in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I start. I was born and raised a brethren. Um, that's uh, not the Plymouth brethren, but the um, the Open brethren. Um, if anyone's listening, who knows the difference between those two? And um, mostly they're anti-institutional, very, very deeply personal faith, very much your relationship with Christ. That's it. You and uh, kind of the scriptures and that's it. Um, we did dabble with the, the local Baptists because the brethren are quite small. So we mixed with them for other reasons. Um, for various reasons, including um, my parents' uh, uh, stress levels and, and conflict and eventual separation and divorce. Um, we ended up with the Pentecostals for a while. So I was training as a youth leader in the Pentecostals for a while. And um, that all kind of broke down when part of the story is that I was looking for, how do you know truth? How do you know anything? Mm. The brethren said it's in scripture. And I said, well, what if your interpretation is different? And they said, mm. it's clear. And I said, <laughs> well, it kind of isn't. Um, and then the Pentecostals gave you a good answer because they said, well, God tells us directly through the Holy spirit, just like he promised. And that's all very well until you get two different people claiming to have the Holy spirit, tell them two different things. Right. Uh, I gave up on pretty much all of it. Um, and also corresponded with my parents getting to the point of separation. Um, and that's a fairly disheartening and demoralizing time. Mm. And so I gave up on God and kind of said, well, I don't even believe in this stuff anyway, so I'll live it up and enjoy life. And the thing is, when you try and do that, you actually don't enjoy yeah. life. Yeah. And um, that only lasted a little bit of a year. I studied engineering in that year and it was mostly table tennis, pool and beer. Um, but I did pass just for the record. <laughs> I just didn't do very well. And I, I left and I was actually going to try nursing next. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, um, but I was enrolled for nursing and then decided um, I would just go out and get a job. And so I went to Melbourne, came across some Lutheran friends and they impressed me with their quite deep scholarship of scripture, which was different to the brethren. Brethren is very personal and very suspicious of academics and very suspicious of anything institutional. Um, and now I'm a Catholic intellectual, so I'm yeah. almost the opposite of everything that was, <laughs> I was brought up to be. But yeah. um, it, um, the Lutherans were, were impressive because they, they went to the original languages, they learned them, they studied mm -hmm. the scriptures in the original languages. And I spent 13 years as a Lutheran, including six years in their seminary. Mm -hmm. And and I was ordained as a Lutheran minister and served a couple of years in uh, Melbourne as a pastor. And I did, I mean, two years as a pastor and a couple of years as vicars, three, two or three years as vicar before that. So I'd only been there a short while before the cri the same crisis came back. How do you know? Right. And then I'm cutting a very long story short. And basically the how do you know question can't even be answered when you study Greek and Hebrew and Latin mm -hmm. and all the mm -hmm. original languages and you read the original text, you still have, as I had 450 very well-educated men in the same room voting 50, 50 down the line on an issue that was, I thought was pretty clear and it just very clearly wasn't to many people. And therefore I had to say, well, you know what? Votes don't solve these things. And I went back to history and realized actually the Catholic church is the only one with any kind of claim to Christ's authority. It's not that the Lutherans don't have it. It's that they don't even claim it. They don't even right. pretend to claim it. Um, uh, I tried for a little bit to write up a kind of a branch theory, which is, I don't know if you followed any Cardinal Newman, but he as an Anglican tried to, justify being an Anglican. He sort of saw himself as an Anglo-Catholic. Right. He wrote what's called a Tract 90, which is his attempt to demonstrate that um, the Anglican church is a branch of the Catholic church. Oh, right. And, uh, and I tried to do that with Lutheranism and it worked for a couple of months. And then a good friend shot all my arguments to pieces um, and he was right. Mm. And I, realized actually i can't in good conscience remain a lutheran minister because this isn't this isn't the church that christ founded and i do not have the authority to do the things i did because lutherans 
believe in the Eucharist of sorts and they believe in the con- confession absolution. And mm. uh, I couldn't go on um, doing that when I was suddenly aware of the fact that I had not in fact received orders. Um, right. So, oh, okay. so I resigned and was sought entry into the Catholic church six weeks later um, after I left preached my last homily in the Lutheran oh, church wow. and, um, and was received thankfully six weeks later um, by a priest who had been very, very generously spending time and, and talking us through the whole thing. Uh, he was quite interesting, actually, that priest. He he had been in, present in England when some of the Anglicans had come across to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And he was aware that some people leave their church to come to the Catholic Church to run away from something. And some of them, when they realised the Catholic Church isn't perfect, went went back. Right, I see. <laughs> and, and so he he did a fair bit of testing of us, like testing us to see, are you really here for the Catholic Church? And it's a lesson I've learned in a lot of ways since it's, you should never leave something to go somewhere else just because you're running away from something. You yeah, should always yeah. go to something that is good, true and beautiful. Mm. And, you, and you should join the church because it's true, not because I don't like the other guys. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Would you say like your move from Lutheranism into the church, was it kind of like, like earth shattering? Like, is it kind of, kind of traumatic? It is in culturally, it's very traumatic, um, mm-hmm. and I'd, I think I'd like to separate cultural from theological, um, because I would say almost everything the Lutherans taught is good Catholic truth, um, but there's a lot missing. So there's a huge amount more I've learned as a Catholic, which fills in the gaps and makes right. sense of what I learned as a Lutheran. There are a lot of gaps mm. in the Lutheran theology. There's some things they teach I can't teach anymore, which is, you know, the Pope's the Antichrist. You can't say that. Um, that's, that's, you know, not kosher. Mind you, when I was um, considering this, John Paul II was Pope. And I have to say, as a Pope, he's a really bad Antichrist. He just didn't, <laughs> cut it. He just didn't come through with the goods, you know, if you're really looking for that Antichrist stuff. Right. <laughs> he didn't cut it. And it made it very difficult, actually, to think through as a Lutheran. You yeah, know, that's cool. Well, I mean, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah. Your yep. life to be the witness. <laughs> so uh, one of his books, uh, Witness to Hope, um, was a book on the papacy and the fact that it's actually a positive and beautiful gift to the church. Um, and it was one I remember reading that and another one by a fellow called Cardinal Ratzinger. He wrote mm-hmm. a book called Called to Communion, which is a beautiful little reflection on on the church as a, a call to all Christians. And both of those really touched my heart at the time. I was already seeking, I was already looking for answers in this area and I was already um, determined to go where, wherever Christ led me. Now, in a sense, jumping from Lutheran to Catholic wasn't as big a deal as it is for other people who've grown up in the one church and it's their first big cultural shift. Mm-hmm. I had already moved from my, my church of origin, like my, my birth church, if you right. like, yeah, yeah. to the Lutherans. And so I was already prepared to make that, you know, jump if it was true. Mm. I had already sort of set the tone on that. However, I was leaving, like I was, I had two degrees in theology. Um, so you're a bit, car salesmen don't want to have you, you know, political officers don't want to touch you because you've got theology. There's all kinds yeah. of jobs that won't touch you because you've got degrees. I was um. basically qualified to do nothing because Catholics didn't trust the Lutheran degrees. Yeah. And, yeah. and Lutherans didn't trust me being a Catholic, understandably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so the the really scary thing about becoming Catholic was mostly practical. It was mostly I had two children, I had a wife. Um, how am I going to feed them? Yeah, um, yeah. When, when I preached my last homily uh, on the Sunday, I had twenty dollars left in my pocket um, and no wage coming in, and no no idea where the rent in two weeks time or the food tomorrow was going to come from. Mm. It was quite a, uh, a gut wrenchingly scary time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And almost every Protestant minister who becomes Catholic has a similar thing because you, you lose almost all your contacts are directly in, yeah. in, in the ministry or in your parish. And that means that everyone is quite afraid or hurt or angry at you and you lose all the, all the supports about half the the men in the states who become catholic uh, lose their wives as well 
their wives oh, leave wow. them. And that, that was a bit scary for me at, at first, although it was never really a worry. It was just my fear. Um, mm, mm. My wife tells me I was being silly to worry. But um, yeah. so Sounds like you had a similar problem to uh, Cardinal Newman after he became a Catholic, eh? Yeah, and you get into the church. I mean, I had only... I'd read most things to get myself into the church. Um, I'd read lots of Henri de Lubac, um, Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, although he's a Lutheran and he convinced me of a number of things Catholic. Um, I read um, Cardinal Ratzinger, who later Benedict XVI, of course, um, Mm. John Paul II, lots of authors like that, um, and really, really felt the call and the grip of the theology, theological arguments and the love that was in them and the love of God. But um, when I became a Catholic, um, I had only spoken at any kind of length to about three Catholics about theology. All so right. one of them was the priest that received us. Um, another one was a, one of his good friends. And the other one was the local Catholic priest who was, who were, you know, put up the church that would, we would be received in. Um, the local priest was a very practical man, very helpful, but he didn't talk to us much about theology, um, which is fine. It wasn't his role. He was very gentle mm. and just listened to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and the other fellow really was only just a, a friend who he actually stood in as our sponsor. Um, mm. Uh, but the priest who received us was an excellent theologian and an excellent man and sort of was, was right there for us right at the hard times. And on the final day when, when we had a crucial kind of crashing, crushing kind of condemnation by the church I was in at the time, um, you know, they just showed up with fish and chips one night, he and the, the, the parish priest and just sat, sat with us and listened and mm-hmm. talked to us. It was very, he was a very generous man. Um, he's, um, he's now not uh, just a priest. He's risen to greater heights, but he's, um, still a very good and generous man. Oh, fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I, I'm i I'm a convert myself, but, uh, um, I guess it was less, um, dramatic cause I, I kind of came from what was the, a technically an Anglican background, but no real formation in, uh, it was essentially indifference. And so I came from nothing to something. But what right. I really, what I really enjoy about like your story of conversion is like the fact that it was that was that the thing that like pierced you was that does that like how do you know things? And that's that's the thing. And it's like it's like you you found something which started answering questions, and you completely involved yourself in that, and that led you into Lutheranism. But that question still wasn't answered. And I think, you know, that really sings tr- true in that story that you were telling me. I think it's the story of us, for us all, really. Um, mm. That's the only story of conversion. It's like you have to have that uh, question burning on your heart. And uh, I think, you know, it's, a, it's a, a tactic that I promote with evangelizing others. It's kind of like, how do we evangelize? I say, you have to live a life that's both attractive and confusing. So it's attractive mm. that people find you um approachable and yep. friendly and say actually you know he's a really cool guy i really want to hang out with him but then and confusing in a way that makes them that makes them question yep and then they might get one of those questions that just burns on their heart and then it's like i might not answer it but i made yeah. you question and that's the seed planted well i mean the question hasn't gone away the how do you mm. know question still still is my burning question and I'm curious about almost everything. And if the mechanic comes around, my wife has to drag me away because I'll sit there and watch the engine and try and figure out how it works and <laughs> look at it. And I'm just fascinated by stuff. Mm. But um, the, the difference is that within the Catholic church, that's the mode of being Catholic. Mm. Um, whereas if you constantly questioning in some other churches, it's just, it's seen as, um, you know, a rebellion, uh, a kind of a, um, a free for all kind of attack on their authority when in fact, or in some churches they want you to question, but they don't actually stand for anything. Like there's no Mm. solid doctrine. Whereas the church says, here's the truth, but we're going to be patient with you while you figure it out. You you come to grips with it. And, and we also, the church doesn't claim to know everything about everything. It just simply says, these are the things we know. 
and and I say, what does that mean? And they go, I don't know. Why don't you work it out? (laughs) (laughs) You can read this guy's writings or that guy's writings. And there's so much. I, um, I just don't think that I'm ever going to scratch the surface of Mm. what's, what's possible in terms of the Catholic faith. So I've specialized a little bit since uh, becoming a Catholic, which was 20 something years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and, I'm delighted. I'm just absolutely delighted that the searching and questioning and uh, finding of answers or not um, is still very much within the context of God's grace and his promises. Mm. So we know the stuff that really matters. We know the stuff that's about how to be, you know, the right in the right with God in the right with other people, do the right thing by them, how to love and pretty much everything else is about discovery. Yeah, I think like, that's one of the things that really attracted me to the Catholic Church and away from like Protestantism. Because when I converted, I was at um, I was in Wales at university, and um, I had like my Catholic friends and my Protestant friends, and the thing that just seemed kind of weak about Protestantism is they had all the answers. Like they they understand they've they've worked it out. We worked out scriptures, and here's the answers. <laughs> and every time but then with catholicism it was like um every time i had a question i'd find an answer which would then give me more questions and it was just it just it just sucked you in and like yeah. it's just like so much more substantial and just life-giving and just it keeps the mission going and i think it in that it teaches you a truth of that there is truth and you're never going to know it, but you can keep looking and you can yep. still, you can, you can be, you can be like infinitely fed because yep. there's, there's so much finite knowledge that like it's more than your finite life <laughs> and finite understanding. Any, uh, any level of inquiry a Catholic is happy with. So when people say, Oh, I don't go with your scriptures. I go with science. I go, all right, well, look, a Catholic church isn't scared of how you find the truth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pick your, pick your weapon, science, whatever we, we'll mm. go with you, literature, um, scripture, whatever you want to do, we'll go with you and you'll find yourself in the same place. You'll find yeah. yourself in the same truth. Having said that I've been studying um, scripture all my life and I've been studying um, scripture in Hebrew and Greek for over quarter of a century. So 25 years of reading the scriptures in Hebrew and Greek and I'm anyone who thinks they've got it all understood is in trouble because it's just i mean i still keep finding new stuff out and it's still very cool um but every i teach uh, two or three classes a week in scripture and i have a monday night bible study with some friends Mm. every week i'm discovering something new and it's something amazing exciting and and new and adds to the the pool of um understanding but it's the same as if you i mean you would know this if you if you're married to someone you never truly know everything about them. Now you do get to know them much better as you go. And mm. over the years mm. you get much, much more familiar. But if you're actually in love with them, you never, there's never a day where you don't go, huh, that's, that's cool. Or, yeah, yeah. New, or some new appreciation of something old. You know, there's a whole sort of journey of genuine love and discovery, which is pretty much what the faith is where we're discovering Christ who's our bridegroom. So, mm. No, yeah, it's uh, it's awesome, and uh, yeah, like yeah, because it's a you know it's a relationship with God. It's not just uh, I think everyone looks at it as a, it's a religion, it's an institution, it's a list of rules to follow, and it, it's so much more than that. It's um, mm. it's 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 a relationship. Like I remember, like uh, <laughs> when I um, when I was working at the chaplaincy, I, the priest chaplain was leaving and we were getting a new priest chaplain. I told my friend in the UK and he's not Christian. And he says, Oh, so you, are you going to be the priest chaplain now? I was like, well, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 because I'm married. And, like, and he just went, Oh, there's so many rules. Like, it's what? No, it's not. A, what? I don't well, want to be a priest. <laughs> but do you know what though? Any relationship has boundaries. Now the, the Catholic church doesn't have, this is, it's really interesting. There's a difference between positive and negative boundaries. Um, they all, always, talk about thou shalt not kill as you know, they sound so negative. Yeah. Mm. Well, negative boundaries are actually more liberating than positive boundaries. If, if I say, if there's 26 chairs in a room, I don't know why I picked that number, but anyway, and I say to you, you must sit on that chair. That's a positive commandment, but it makes you, it limits you to one choice. But if I 
say there's 26 chairs here and you must not sit in that chair, that leaves you 25 other choices. Right. So the negative commandment is actually frees you in so many more ways than a positive one would. Mm. Mm. So instead of saying you've got to do this, as some, a, lot of, a lot of the modern culture does, you've got to be actually be on board with this issue or that issue, or you've got to say yeah. these words. That's very limiting and it's very much against individual freedoms, love, and it genuinely isn't free will. Yeah. Whereas the Bible says, you know what? You just want to love. By the way, these boundaries say stuff that's not love. Yeah, that's not yeah. loving. So just to give a trivial example and maybe slightly amusing, when I first got married, I came from a family where practical jokes were, the, were pretty much all the time. All right. um, but I found out very quickly, like within two weeks of being married, that a cup of cold water over the top of the shower of my wife was not in her boundary of this is a loving thing to do. Right. right. <laughs> now, it was hilarious in my family and you'd get everyone back and it would do it. But she made it very clear. This is out of bounds. You know, right. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is not going to be received as love. Now, people out there might be saying you're an idiot. You shouldn't have had that in your boundaries at the start. <laughs> my perspective, I grew up that way and I felt you know, that was just something we did. Yeah. Now, very clearly, she laid out the foundations. And that means now if I love her, I'm going to listen to her about where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And that no matter what I feel about it, that's not going to be loving, loving to her. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, and so the boundaries actually, they're not restrictive of me. They help me to love her. Mm, mm. Because yeah. Cause they, I was just thinking about that with that um, commandment, thou shalt not kill. It's like, so what does that leave you? That only leaves you life and creation. And yes. that's, that's endless. It's like, Oh, well I only have this now. <laughs> You yes. know, but I think, you know, people, I used to um, run a session on um, uh, John chapter 15 when, when I used to run retreats and it was, it was that line is like, um, these are my commandments um, you, that you must obey to love one another. And I break that line down for them. It's like, I'd say, well, how do you feel when I hear commandments and obey? And I was like, oh, it's horrible. I'm not doing that. Keep me away. And they're like, so, okay, well, what is the commandment? Let's, let's, let's give them benefit of the doubt. And it's like to love one another. I was like, well, how do you feel about that? And they're like, oh, well, I could, I could do that. And I was like, so why are you freaking out about these two words, command and obey? And, uh, yeah. But yeah, I think everyone gets caught up in the, uh, in those words, eh? Well, it's original sin. It literally, the original sin is that Satan says, I will not obey. And uh-huh. Adam, when Adam disobeys, it's about the original sin is you want to be like God. So mm-hmm. that's the temptation of Satan. You will be like God, knowing good from evil, or discerning good from evil. Now, Adam and Eve were free in all sorts of ways, but they weren't free to be something they're not, which mm. is not, not God. And every time we choose um, against the commandments, what we're saying is, Thank you, God, for your suggestions. I know better than you how mm-hmm. to love today. I know better than you how to do things. And pretty much we're playing God. Yeah. Even if it's a tiny little thing that we're doing, we're saying it will be better for me if I lie. And God's saying, uh-uh, it's not going to be better for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Well, we've been talking, I think uh, we could probably talk about this stuff forever because you're a, a lecturer at Notre Dame University. And uh, so this is, and you've been uh, studying this for the best part of your life, I think. Uh, is that fair to say? It is. But um, the reason I brought you here, or virtually brought you here, is uh, because you have eight children. And I do. I want to talk to you about, um, does it, you know, fatherhood, you know, how to dad, as the, uh, the Kiwi YouTube legend is uh, called. Um, but like, in a in, I guess in a Catholic way, what what is uh, what does Catholicism bring to fatherhood? How has Catholicism um, influenced you in in your in your not just having eight children, but in in, in the, the growing of them? Well, I mean, in very practical terms, um, being Catholic has meant I've had more kids um, because as soon as we had. Um, the first two that we had, everybody in, in my acquaintance, because we were Protestants at the time, said, oh, well, you've got your pigeon pair now. That'll be enough. And they really, really pushed hard. And it was quite 
confronting at times. They pushed very hard for my wife to, um, to stop having children, put the kids in childcare and go and uh, further her career. She's, um, she was, she has two degrees, in fact, in architecture and, and they were pushing her to go be the professional wife. Hmm. She didn't want to, um, hmm. she wanted to be a mum, and she felt constantly harassed by that. And, and yet we were fearful enough of that pressure. There is, and there is a vast difference, even though in theory we have the same doctrine as the Protestants in regards to abortion or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's only a theory when you actually look at the pressure that's on the families. Yeah. And once we became Catholic, we felt free to have more. We didn't feel obliged, not mm-hmm. in the slightest bit obliged, but it was interesting that almost instantly we noticed when we announced to our friends and family that we were expecting our third, all of the people who were Protestants, whether they were conservative or liberal or whatever they were, they all said, why or what? Or Was that deliberate? Whereas all the Catholics, from the most conservative to the most angry anti-Pope liberals, all of them said, congratulations. Mm. And it was really interesting. I expected the conservatives on all sides to be happy and all the liberals to be unhappy. But in fact, it was actually, there's a Catholic worldview, which is still, there's a residual family positivity. Now they might, some of them were pro-abortion. Some, this is the Catholics. Some Mm. of the Catholics I worked with at the time were in in marriage family counseling and they were pro-divorce, pro-gay marriage, all these things. And yet they still had enough residual positivity about family that they joyfully received a larger family. That's beautiful. So the fir- that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that um, fatherhood is based on the heavenly father. As St. Paul says, all fatherhood takes its name from the heavenly father. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means that we're trying to model the love of the father. And mm-hmm. what, what does he do? When you look at Israel, he's, who he calls his son in the Old Testament, <clears throat> um, <laughs> Every second minute, the Israelites are whinging about something, stuffing up, going out after other gods, um, tarting around after any other person who's around, and God is saying, oh, really? And constantly welcoming them back, forgiving them, picking them up, um, uh, changing the situation, um, repairing the damage, um, just constant, constant love poured out to unwilling and unworthy uh, children of God. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and God uh, gets frustrated in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God gets um, upset and, and uh, a little bit angry sometimes with the, when the, frustrated when the people aren't doing the right thing. But mm-hmm. his constant love is probably best described by when the Lord describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding or bubbling over with steadfast love. Mm-hmm. Um, and the image there is quite intense. It's God running after us, looking for ways to love us, looking for ways to be good. And um, that pretty much describes Catholic fatherhood that you firstly, that you're open to life. Um, And that doesn't mean having as many kids as you can, (laughs) because you've got to be sensible about uh, your wife's health, about the, your, both of your mental health, about the circumstances, Mm -hmm. about whether or not you have a legitimate, um, you know, you have enough to, to feed them all. Um, but being generous and open to life and not selfish. So not having children to have a family, you know, condo and the big boat or something like that's probably not on my agenda anymore. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I probably won't over own my home. I probably will never have a holiday home somewhere. Um, yeah. But I have um, eight beautiful children with me here and three with, in heaven with God. And it's, um, it's, it's pretty much the generosity thing, I would say. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I was talking to a, a, a fellow today on my placement. Um, he's one of the social workers on, on the ward. And he's, ju- he's got a, a little boy about the same age as my little girl. And we were just talking about how, um, and we both had the same inclination. And I don't know if, I don't know if he's Christian or Catholic or anything. And, um, we both had the exact same inclination. It's like when I had a child, that's when I became a man. It was like, yeah, I've been married. I've been married for for me. I've been married for three years. Is it three years? Yeah. Three years, four years, maybe. 
and then he he said he'd been they've been tr- struggling with infertility for 16 and he right. said as soon as i as soon as this uh little baby came into my life everything changed but at the same time nothing changed like because me me and me and my wife were saying the other day it's like i don't feel any different i don't feel like a parent now i don't feel how i perceive my parents to be you know uh, but at the same time i don't think i don't feel like i i don't feel like i've changed but i feel like everything's changed so like uh, i don't i don't care about myself anymore and he's saying like yeah he used to save up to uh, buy all these things. Like, I think he's a bit of a gamer as well. And he's all like, actually, screw it. I don't, you know, I don't want the house. I don't want the car. I don't want the sneakers. I just want this kid in my life. And man, it's just, and like now I've got the second child, just the, the concept of it is like when my little girl came along, I was like, yep, yeah, I'm, uh, we've got a family now. And now I've, I know a second one's coming. I was like, man, we weren't even, part of a family this is a family <laughs> you know it's always a level up you know well i mean family is when two people um give themselves to each other in marriage but you're right the perception of it changes dramatically when you have a literally your love becomes another person mm. um, and you you suddenly there is a danger in it because you, there's a temptation to pour all of your attention and affection into the child and that is a danger for Mm. parents and in fact it's poor parenting if you neglect each other in Mm. favor of the child now i'm not saying you should ignore the child but the best thing you can do for a child is love its mother Mm. yeah 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 the most important thing you can do as spouses is love each other and create a home in which not and again i'm just saying you love each other by loving your children anyway yeah yeah but but you don't you don't actually do the children any favors if they take priority yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, in practical terms, most of my day, it, I mean, apart from when I'm at work, most of my day is running after the kids, fixing up bikes, you know, talk, you know, arranging activities. Um, and with eight of them around, you, there's a fair amount of joint activities going on. Um, mm. But in terms of priority, and, in, and it's very clear to the kids that, you know, if I have a date night or if there's mm. some mum and I have a particular time to talk, then that's sacred and, and they know. And in fact, they kids feel much more secure when they know mum and dad are an item, that mum and dad are mm. actively um, still courting each other, still caring about each other and um, still very much on the same side. And so mm. it's, it's an incredibly important thing that way. But in terms of fatherhood, um, I know the feeling. I, I drove back from the hospital after our first was born and I was punching you know, <laughs> punching yeah. the air and, <laughs> and feeling like on top of the world. Um, and it's, it is, it's a concrete way in which your fatherhood takes shape. Mm. But we need to be careful about um, uh, disco- um, distinguishing feelings from, from objective reality because every man participates in the fatherhood of men um, in some way. So priests, for example, participate in a kind of spiritual fatherhood. Right. Um, okay. Oh, very and, good. And they have their own spiritual fatherhood. And that's why we call them father because they are spiritual fathers. And we have yeah. um, my, you know, my senior relatives, uh, they, they participate in a fatherhood, which isn't physically from them, but they're involved in a kind of fatherly capacity or a motherly mm. capacity from their particular angle. So, even a single person um, can in fact be a very positive uh, mentor and guide mm-hmm, and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. And in, in that way they participate in the fathering because it takes a village to raise a child and the mm. village can't be all your dad and you can't be all your mum. Mm. You need everybody involved. Yeah. Something that, that's something that I've definitely learned in my life because um, yeah, my parents got divorced when I was uh, three and mum moved back to the UK whereas my dad stayed in America so I never really had a dad until my stepdad comes along in when I was 12 and then we didn't have a really we didn't really click uh, to put it politely and um, yeah moving to New Zealand and getting married was like almost a traumatic experience for me because it's like I had to I had to man up I had to be a husband and uh, and it's like I don't I've, I've got no reference you know, that's, that's I don't exactly know what to the do. Point. That's exactly but like, the thing. I've learned so much from uh, even my stepdad, even though we didn't really get on. Um, we get on a lot better now, but uh, I'm on the other side of the world. So that's probably why. 
Um, but like my mate's dads, um, men that I've worked with, priests, uh, they've kind of just given me um, models. And like that's one thing that I think has really just been become a part of my life since having a child. It's like, man, I need to get my act together. You know, I need to I need to give this child something to model on. And so I've been like, right, okay, uh, when I go to university, I'm going to study harder than any, anybody else. Don't get better <laughs> grades than anyone else, but harder than anyone else. I've, I've started working out to be physically fit. I've been working on my prayer life. It's like this, this child needs to see somebody pray, needs to see somebody work, needs to see somebody strive for greatness. So then they'll know how to do it. Not because I've taught them, but because they see it. Well, there is, there is, um, very much that factor that the the um the children learn by what they see more than what you tell them mm. now I, I do remember a few things my dad told me he had a couple of sayings which have stuck with me a long time but what i remember most is what he did and i and it's not so much i mean there's the things he did every day so the habits i remember mm-hmm. but i remember the key moments like those crucial moments when you might forgive someone for losing it and going off the rails because it was a big thing. Like when he fell off the horse and the horse landed on his ankle and broke his leg. Um, I remember that vividly because of his reaction and the fact that he, the way he carried himself out of that particular event was it's seared in my brain as a lesson of manhood. Right. That's so cool. And so the teachable moments are almost never the ones we set up. Like we mm. set up a nice teachable moment. They, they aren't the ones that work. The habits you form and the, the habitual a life that you you create and they see every day um your habits of speech your habits of attitude and the key moments when you're not thinking about teaching a kid you're thinking about the disaster or the 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 scary thing that's happening or whatever it is how you react to those are formative moments for your kids um my kids uh generally speaking don't remember much about my driving but they remember well, I'll, I'll just only say the positive ones, but <laughs> they remember the time when it was raining and I stopped the car and got out of the car and helped a guy push a guy off the road because his car had broken down. He was in a dangerous position. Oh, wow. And, and then we got, I jumped back in. I didn't do anything. I just jumped back in and, and kept driving. And they that's burned in their memories. I'd never even talked to them about it. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a moment that you're not really thinking about teaching your kids, but they watch everything. They, yeah, yeah. Psychologists tell us that they've developed their attitude to driving by the time they're eight. All right. And so, you know, all those times they can't even talk in the back and, and mm. they're gooing and garring. And if you're waving your fist at some guy and calling him an idiot, then they're, they're learning this attitude. Mm. Um, it's a pretty big, big deal. Um, the, the kids, you, something you said before, though, really wants, I want to catch up on. Um, the kids draw out of you. Um, selflessness. Mm. Um, a, a Dominican priest once asked me, do, "Why do you think children are so cute?" And I said, "Self-defense," um, because I'd just <laughs> be, I'd just been up till three a.m. with my kid, and I was thinking, <laughs> and then you know you go in and you're just so angry at the fact that you haven't got sleep, and it's the fourth night in a row, and you look at the kid, and they're so gorgeous. Yeah. Go, how can you be so cute <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like my, self de- my wife would agree with you <laughs> it's it's self-defense and then they get up the next morning and they're all smiles and love and hugs and you're going grr yeah but, yeah, yeah but the point is they don't let you be as selfish as you'd like to be like yeah. you mentioned all those things that you're doing because you're inspired to be a good example i didn't want to get up on saturday morning i, oh, yeah. I never do i don't want to get up but for so many years I would have to get up because the kids would be bouncing on my bed saying, you promised to take us to the park. And <laughs> we go, um, I was never really good at staying fit. And, but when I had, I had years and years of coaching junior soccer and, and, you know, and, and cricket and various other things, I was never really good at um, organizing my my day into something organized but my wife is very organized and i have to be organized to keep up with her Mm. there's a kind of a people talk about marriage drawing into holiness i i agree but i don't have this kind of i don't think it's a spiritual kind of choir going on in the background that sort of (laughs) majestically drags you to holiness it's actually a whole bunch of people around you prodding you refusing you to let you be selfish yeah yeah, you have to love them because they're there and they need you 
Yeah, I had a, uh, I posted a status on my Facebook the other day about um, how much I'm enjoying my course being a nurse and saying like, basically, I I don't know what else I'm, you know, I was, I was sent here to do. And someone rather piously put, uh, to become a saint, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by what means? You know, well, you that's exactly sit, right. The saints had jobs. <laughs> yeah, you don't just sit there and become a saint and it's not about how many rosaries you pray or how many hours you spend in adoration but it's about living the life that god gave you and i was like yeah so what are the means uh, to be a nurse uh, to be a father to be a husband um and so that's you know this is being a nurse is part of my sainthood you know just as like uh, being um a mother was part of is it saint gianna who gave her life um mm-hmm. to, to save her daughter you know the being a mother and a doctor was part of her journey. That's right. Um, and so like, yeah. And I, I like being a father. It's, it's like, um, have you ever read, um, Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Yeah. I've read it and read it to my children. There's that scene when, um, that guy turns into a dragon. Oh and, yes. And he's Eustace. Scra- yeah. Eustace. He's scratching all the, um, the layers of scales off. He's like, this is painful, but it's working. And then, Aslan's like I'll do it for you you know and it's like the most painful thing he's ever done I was like that's that's life you know this is fatherhood it's like you know someone asked me it's like I told them I wake up every morning at six and do a workout for half an hour and they were like oh do you really enjoy that I'm like no not at all (laughs) I, I do it because I need to be my best self because I've got a wife and a daughter and another child on the way to uh to be the best self for you know and uh I don't enjoy it. <laughs> well, in, in, in many respects, there's different, uh, I'm sure many people have said to you, um, live these li- these years um, with joy and appreciate them because you'll miss them when they're gone. Mm. Um, my youngest is not a typical child. He has special needs. And so we, he spent a good part of his first two and a half years in intensive care and in hospitals and things. So we miss that kind of cute baby stage. And, mm-hmm. and even now he's kind of, you know, very intense needs at six years old. So it's been almost um, 10 years now since we had a baby of just the normal cute sort of crying mm. variety. Um, and I miss it. I, I find myself, I didn't realize how much I miss it, but some friends had little babies recently and I held one for a little while and realized I'm absolutely, it's unlikely, it seems, that we will be back there. Mm. And I miss it dreadfully. Um, however, at the time, uh, when you've got, you know, an average of a couple of hours sleep a night and you're absolutely just struggling to keep your head above water, you're hanging out and you want, you, you go to the older parents and you say, tell me when this all somehow <laughs> <laughs> coalesces into, into a stage when I can think. Uh, yeah put two thoughts together without it being in a fog of total lack of sleep and everything we had. um, I mean, they're they're at two year intervals, generally speaking. So we've had them pretty constantly for quite some time, 20 something years. Um, So it's only now in the last, you know, eight or so years that we've had any kind of um, kind of relief from that constant cycle, but we miss it horribly. And we, we, it's a heart wrenching loss when, when that time goes, but the um, parenting um, teenagers is its own challenge and its own Mm. joys. And they are actually, in spite of what people um, say about teenagers, they can in fact be genuinely um, joy filled experiences Mm. They are, they have their own challenges. I think what happens with some parents is that they imagine that once you've stopped changing nappies, you can more or less expect the kids to go away and do their thing and they won't be any more trouble. You know, you don't have to invest in them. But in fact, you have to invest just as much time with them, not changing nappies, but actually just listening and being in part of their activities. And Mm. you, you don't ever stop playing with your children, so to speak. You play a lot when they're little toddlers you don't stop when they're older because you have to actually invest the time mm-hmm. being part of their world, understand their music, understand what they're doing, be engaged with them. And I suspect that people who aren't engaged with their kids find it very difficult because they've, they've not kept that connection. Mm. And school doesn't make that 
easier. I have to admit that putting them in a, you know, in a random group of peers, roughly their age who are constantly in the same, you know, in a different situation probably isn't helpful. Um, I have to confess at this stage that I pulled my kids out of schools um, seven or eight years ago now, and uh, we've homeschooled them since. Oh, yeah. And it's vastly improved. Um, well, it's improved a lot of things, but it's vastly improved our relationship with our kids and our yeah, yeah. contact with them and, and the activities we do together mm. and the experiences we have and the relationship we have. Some of them, you know, they were, they, aren't necessarily on board with us. A couple of my kids have decided they don't, don't believe the same stuff as us um, as adults. Everyone's got a free will. Mm. We still have a common experience. We still have a relationship that we can talk about these things. Um, Nothing's the end of the story. Mm. And we try very hard to keep those doors open and be that place where they can come back to when they Mm. need us, whether whatever they think. Mm. Yeah. Well, I didn't convert to Catholicism until I was 22. So I mean, there's always time. But um, uh, I'm the only Catholic in my family now. Um, I mean, I suppose like my dad's technically Catholic because he's he's Italian, but um, you know he doesn't believe in God or go to church or anything. Um, But um, yeah, I think like you're talking about like the kind of almost like suffering of parenthood, uh, the 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 sleepless nights and the the changing of the nappies, and I think. I think maybe the year before or two years before uh, we conceived, um, St. Therese of Lisieux um, started teaching me about joyful suffering. Um, I, got, I got a Kindle and I was like, first thing I did with my Kindle, free Catholic books. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a commentary on the story of a soul. I read the commentary in like 20 seconds. I'm a, I'm a library. I'm, I'm dyslexic. 20 seconds for me is like a, a week. Yeah. Um, and I, and, I, and I just couldn't put it down. I was like, right, now I need to read the story of a soul. And I read it and I would literally read one chapter and like, I need to read that again. And I just read the chapter and then the chapter again. And then I do that same next chapter. And I was like, this is, this is what suffering is. This is joyful suffering. This is how we're, and like, ever since then, I've, you know, I, I love suffering, <laughs> you know, not, not in, not, I'm not, not, not looking out for suffering, not being sadistic or anything, but like when I, when I, and presented with a daunting task like um we had to fit when we bought our house we had to fix it up and um we, we had to knock down walls we had to redo the drainage in the back and there was there was these two conflicting sides of me going on of like oh my gosh this is horrible i don't know what i'm doing this is stressful and hard and jess's dad he was uh he's a builder and he was just beating the crap out of me because he's a tradie and that's what they do <laughs> so it wasn't enjoyable at the same time i was like this is amazing this is this is so awesome and like it's the it's the you know the the, the lack of sleep changing nappies waking up early because the baby's woken up and putting everything i wanted to do and had planned and ready set out aside so then i could be with this child it's all like mm. it just tears that layer of dragon flesh off me but it's so good <laughs> but it's so painful and I just, I uh, praise the Lord for St. Teresa of Lisieux because I don't think I'd understand it in any other way. Um, but yeah, I think fatherhood really is, um, it's, it's like the, the negative um, commandments that you were talking about earlier, you know, thou shalt not care about yourself, but then what's left? Everyone Everybody else. else. <laughs> and it's just, yep. and it's just such an enriching experience. Um, just to finish off, uh, because we're coming to the hour mark, um, a question came to my mind the other day that I realized I don't know the answer to. And it's always one that's brought up by our Protestant brothers and sisters. It's like, why do we call a priest father when in the scriptures it says you shall not call anyone father? Um, well, that one's pretty easy to answer because, um, pretty much every one of the Protestants call their father's dad or father or whatever they call them. Mm -hmm. Um, The calling someone father and teacher, uh, which is Christ also says in the scriptures I've noticed, and nobody seems to have a thing against school teachers um, (laughs) uh, is, is quite clearly um, it's, you've got to go back into the Hebraic mindset to understand what that means. If you call someone a teacher, you're acknowledging that they are the authority on a particular thing. And 
Christ is simply putting the authority where it's supposed to be, um, that, that you don't call any human being the ultimate teacher of anything. No human being should be your, your ultimate point of fatherhood. No human being is going to be your ultimate point of teaching. Every part of authority comes from God. All fatherhood is, takes its name from the father, says St. Paul. Now, if, how could St. Paul say that if no one else is supposed to be called father? He says the father from all fatherhood takes its name. Um, and quite clearly, he, he calls himself a spiritual father to a, to a number of people. Um, St. Peter calls St. Mark his son at one stage. He's so mm. affectionate with him. There's, there's genuine filial relationships. And, and St. Paul gives very, very clear instructions to fathers and mothers and, and children and establishes those relationships quite clearly. Um, it, would, it would seem, if you're saying you call no one your father, that Christ is going against uh, the, quite a few things in Scripture, which, he, of course, he's not doing. What he's doing there is saying, don't let a human being usurp God's fatherly authority. Um, do not, they should never do so. And in, in, if we regard a priest as if they are God, and there have been occasions in the Catholic church where people have sort of idolized a particular mm. priest, especially these days with the celebrity priests, um, <laughs> sometimes on, on TV and stuff, then they have in fact breached that idea. But mm -hmm. a priest is only a father in so far as he um, is a manifestation of the love of God, the father, uh, a priest is only Christ as we believe he is in persona Christi um, in so far as he speaks Christ's words and Christ's authority to forgive sins and to, to, to um, consecrate the Eucharist to, to bless us comes through. These people are only, have that authority or name insofar as they are in, you know, ordained manifestations of Christ's own words, Christ's own commands. So a priest, even if he's ordained, can't make up anything new mm. um, to tell us. He can only ever speak the words that Christ commanded him to speak. And if he tells us that we all must wear blue hats for salvation, we can tell him this isn't, this is beyond your authority. This is outside yeah, yeah. of yeah, you being a nong now. Um, and hence, we've heard some people recently in various countries trying to tell us that if you're a Catholic, you have to vote a certain way or you have to support a certain cause or something or you have to go against another one. None of these people have the authority of Christ to say this. Mm -hmm. They can only ever speak exactly what Christ has, has told them to speak, which is almost always just like the Father in heaven has been all the way through the Bible to speak God's love and forgiveness and restoration. Mm, that's brilliant. So yeah, uh, fathers, priests, and not fathers ordained and otherwise are glimmers of Christ, and hence the name Father. Yeah, wow. my authority as a father is limited to God's love. I cannot. If I say, "Get me a beer," um, that's a, they can take it or leave it. That's not God's authority there. That's not Father's authority. I've stepped outside of the range of that authority of God. Oh wow, that's beautiful. Well. Thank you very much for joining me to this podcast. It was uh, it definitely delivered as far as I'm concerned. That was, it was a really beautiful conversation. And we'll definitely have to have you back on to talk about more. Thank you. And hopefully we can we might have to talk to you on my podcast, which is thiscatholiclife.com.au. We'll, we'll see how that goes. We're, we're doing a series on masculinity and fatherhood and, and raising boys. And mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of other things to talk about. And I'd love to talk about the New Zealand experience of the COVID thing and how oh. you guys are coping because it's a bit different over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have been growing this beard for a while, so that's my, <laughs> that's my, uh, that's my claim to masculinity. It's like, I was like... I grew a beard and then I started becoming a nurse and I was like, well, I can't shave it off now. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be glad to be on your podcast and we'll definitely uh, share some of your stuff and let the Kiwis know about the good work you're doing over there in Sydney for the kingdom. So um, thank you for joining us, Pete. And, uh, it was my pleasure. Speak to you soon. God bless. Thank you. Wow, what an episode that was. Pete Holmes, what a great guy. Thank you for supporting our mission at Evangelion. If you want to get behind us and help us further, please consider supporting us financially. For the price of a cup of coffee per month or more, you could be helping us to bring exciting news to New Zealand. 
to set our country on fire with love for Christ. Check out our website at www.evangelion.co.nz. Look us up on Facebook, Evangelion, sharing the truth and love. And we also have an, an Instagram handle of EvangelionNZ. So please check us out and uh, look forward to hearing from you. God bless.